Well, welcome back. Yeah. Season four. Four. Holy crap. I forgot which season it was. Uh, this season is unofficially brought to you by Canada Dry Ginger Ale Lemonade. Or, oh my god, Ginger Ale Lemonade. Ginger Ale Lemonade. They're not even they're not paying us, so I don't feel bad about watching it. Mm-mm. It's really just coincides with the time of year when our favorite drink is back. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today we're talking about the 1918 flu pandemic. Yeah. Um, In the middle of a pandemic. Full disclosure, we planned this episode a year ago. We just bumped it up a little bit because, you know, topical. Yeah. I think I it's said. It's fine. Call security. I think we said this on the call the FBI. Yeah. Um, I think we said this on a previous podcast, but we do not like our. Um, our prediction. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't like our. What is it? Our ignorant omnipotence yeah (laughs) we have omnipotence and we're ignorant to it because we keep on doing this um just really quickly since this is the first episode of seasons a little bit of housekeeping we did rearrange a lot of episodes we were gonna do we wanted to try and stick to current events a little bit like not entirely but it's we do find it really helpful sometimes to talk about things that we think are really relevant to what's going on right now because it'll maybe help understand those current events if we talk about the historical context of them for you. So, um, other thing, uh, we still obviously are on Patreon. Thanks to everybody who donated in the month of April. We managed to donate a decent amount of money to the food bank. They've been doing really good. I actually talked to some food bank employees this week and they were said that right now they're doing really well. There's a lot of food in the community, so they're just kind of recharging. Come fall and stuff, they're expecting it to be tough again. But yeah, so thanks to everyone who supported us that way. And we're also going to try something else we've been talking about. Actually, I'm just going to, yeah. Something else we've been sort of talking about uh, in our, I feel like, in our office chats <laughs> is ways that we can be better at um, amplifying and talking about black lives and black stories and history and trying to do our part to tackle racism and especially anti-black racism and, and tell those stories. And... Uh, it's it's kind of like we we have a platform here and our, our goal is to teach good history and a lot of the time these stories get left out of history and so it would be we would be remiss not to include them and, and try and be better and and we haven't done enough i acknowledge that we we've we've done some but we haven't done nearly enough and so we can be better and we're gonna try and be better so uh yeah we look forward to to doing that and if anybody has requests if anyone is interested in some certain if there's anything in particular you're interested in let us know Again, if any, if there's anything that you guys want us to give a shout out to, that is yeah, any black creators to black podcasters. Yeah, and... we do want to use our platform for good, obviously. Yeah, and to amplify those voices too—not just tell their stories, but help them tell their stories. Yeah, so. and I mean, as a history podcast, we want to tell, we want to try and amplify other voices as much as we can. Yeah, I think that's a good way of saying it. Absolutely. As, and especially like kind as of white historians. Especially. Yeah, and like, um, yeah, I mean, we I we think were, that's an important that was one of, that was one of the things we were talking about before the season started. It's like we kind of need to get out of Europe and North America. North America well, and bit. mostly like white North America. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like it's you know we as white historians we have this platform like we're automatically taken a lot more seriously. Um, something that's been really one of the really fasc- fascinating hashtags going around Instagram or Facebook. Sorry. Oh my God, not Facebook, Twitter. Ugh, I don't use Facebook that often. <laughs> Going around Twitter is uh, Black in the Ivory, which is just like black academics talking about their experiences in academia and how they're just like, their experiences are often discredited or like white academics tell them that their stories aren't, or their, their experiences aren't valid, that, you know, any, it's, they refuse to acknowledge that it's more difficult in most cases and they're just taken less seriously and there's a lot of just everyday examples of, blatant racism in the academy and so we want to be anti-racist and so part of doing that is helping amplify those voices of people who aren't taken seriously because we automatically have a privilege back to pandemic life back to the yeah back to the pandemic life so the 1918 flu pandemic no one really knows anything about it other than it was a flu that killed a lot of people there's a lot of misconceptions about it, and a lot of people are talking about it now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is kind of annoying when you're trying to research and all you can find are comparisons to the goddamn... COVID pandemic. Yeah. yeah. It's not ideal. 
Full disclosure and kind of a spoiler for this, COVID-19 and the Spanish flu are not related whatsoever. Yeah, not at all. They are two completely different types of diseases, even though they are kind of in the same group. I'll get touch on that in a bit, but they are not related. COVID-19 is not a flu. It is more closely related to pneumonias. Actually, so is this flu or the Spanish flu, though, to some extent. To some extent, but we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get into that. So I thought it's, we'd start out with saying, like, what is a pandemic? Because you kind of hear this word going around and you kind of assume what it could be. And honestly, your assumptions are right. So Merriam-Webster's dictionary, which I think is probably the one, one of the most trustful dictionaries yeah. other than Oxford, it defines it as, quote, an outbreak of a disease that occurs over a wide geographic area and affects the, an exceptionally high proportion of the population, end quote. So you may have also heard there's that, the term epidemic. So what is an epidemic compared to a pandemic? Well, epidemic and pandemic are used to describe different severities of an outbreak. So a pandemic is a type of epidemic. So how this was explained to me one time was an, an epidemic is like something like countrywide. When it becomes a pandemic is when it spreads from country to country. Yeah. Is basically the difference. Yeah. It's, as a, far, it's a larger scale. Uh, epidemic is also the, the source word yeah and then it you, then you just add it just it's the scale essentially as it ramps up yeah so yeah an epidemic is defined as affecting many persons at the same time and spreading from person to person in a locality where the disease is not permanently prevalent end quote the world health organization classifies an epidemic as an outbreak at a community or regional level other notable pandemics throughout history probably the most famous one other than the spanish flu is the black death it was an outbreak of the bubonic plague between 1346 and 1353, and it spread across Europe, killing between 75 million and 200 million people, which is between 30% and 60% of Europe's population at the time. It is by probably the worst pandemic in history. So the HIV AIDS is, is classified as another pandemic, but honestly, that deserves an episode of its own. Mm. Then there's the SARS outbreak, which stands for Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and it produces flu-like symptoms, most commonly a fever. The first case was in November 2002, and it lasted until July 31st, with 8,096 total cases and 774 deaths. It was most, po most prevalent within Asia, and unfortunately, I do actually remember there being a little, like some racism towards Asians at the time because stupid people do stupid fucking things like, mm. you know, blame an entire race for something. Mm -hmm. And it is actually the same strain as the current COVID-19 outbreak. COVID-19 is a mutated strain of SARS, yeah. which is something I found out when doing this. Of course, well, there's they a... They talked about that a little bit actually at the breakout of this pandemic. Did they? That, yeah is that it is related to SARS. And also part of it is because SARS was really the last like pandemic that we dealt with as well, or last or, comparable. Yeah. And so the diseases are really comparable though, like more than the swine flu in 2009 and more than, yeah. So yeah. they did talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Of course, every year there's a flu pandemic, mm. but that's the seasonal flu. Yeah. So yeah, pretty much an Which annual kills occurrence. a butt ton of people. <laughs> it does. People get the flu all the time mm -hmm. and then the last one i'm going to mention is the 1900 to 1904 san francisco plague outbreak it was an outbreak of bubonic plague that spread through the city's chinatown 121 people were infected and out of that 119 of them died then california governor henry gage did not admit exists it existed for nearly two years having kept it a secret out of fear the local and state economies would be negatively negatively affected the federal government was forced to step in and began a quarantine of the district. Gage's image collapsed as a result, and he lost re-election in 1902. His successor, George Party, worked with the federal government to provide medical services to the affected areas and maintain a quarantine, which was actually successful. As stupid as this is, Gage, even in his concession speech, refused to admit that the outbreak was real. I feel like that's common. I mean... Look at Donald Trump right I was now. I just going to say that. And Bol what's Bolsonaro. Yeah. And Boris totally got it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So like we talked about, um, 
The virus in question here during this, pandem during this pandemic is often referred to as the Spanish flu. The origin of that name refers to like a couple of different things, but specifically it refers to the pandemic spread from Spain to France in, in November of 1918, and also refers to the fact that Spain was, or Spanish newspapers were really the first to mention the virus. So Spain wasn't involved in World War I and they remained neutral, so that meant that they didn't impose wartime censorship. So newspapers in Spain were able to freely report on the effects of the epidemic, which was ripping through Spain, and they were able to freely report on the grave illness of King's, King Alfonso XIII. So like their leader was sick or their king was sick and they were able to report on it. And so people were able to see these reports and so people just assumed that it started in Spain basically. <laughs> but these widely spread stories created, yeah, the, the false impression that Spain had been especially hard hit when really it actually hadn't. Like it wasn't hit any worse than anywhere else. They were just talking about it <laughs> um, and they weren't dealing with a war at the same time. There's no epidemiological evidence to suggest that the pandemic started in Spain, and there's no evidence to really identify actually where it started geographically. But the flu itself in question, uh, like Jonah mentioned, it's a particularly nasty strain of H1N1 avian influenza, uh, which is a viral infectious disease. The 1918 flu killed an abnormally large number of people, in part possibly due to it provoking what is called a, or a citcatine storm in the body or cyto cytokine storm, sorry, in the body. After the flu would infect the lung, it would lead to the overstimulation of the immune system via a release of cytokines, which is basically a protein that invokes immune response into lung tissue. So then this leads to extensive white blood cell migration towards the lungs, resulting in the destruction of lung cells and the secretion of blood and mucus into the alveoli and airways. Breathing becomes difficult for the patient and can result in suffocation. So essentially like people's lungs filled with fluid and they would collapse and they would die of pneumonia in most cases. So the death toll for the pandemic is kind of strange. And I think that this will be a thing with COVID. And I mean, it's a thing with everything. Death tolls are really difficult to calculate, like we've talked about. But the issue is that like a lot of people's deaths would say like pneumonia or whatever. But really, it was a complication of the like nobody died of the flu, really. They died of complications from the flu. And I think that's often pretty common with COVID as well. Unlike most pandemics, which usually kill the old and the young, uh, the 1918 flu killed a large number of healthy adults. Usually between the ages of 25 and 40 were like particularly at risk. And one of the theories is that because they would have had the healthiest immune systems and they would have mounted much too strong and damaging of a response to the infection. So essentially like the cytokine storm would have been much stronger because their immune systems were healthier. The flu killed a large number of soldiers during the war. Uh, it started in the fall of 1918 in Europe and then spread through France. However, the Americans would also bring it across the pond with them and it would only get worse. So in, 19, in the spring of 1918, the United States was preparing to enter the war in Europe, but it also was dealing with an outbreak of the flu. The first cases of the outbreak were in Haskell County in Fort Riley, Kansas, where young men were being hospitalized for severe flu-like symptoms. It is unclear how it started, but it is suggested that it had something to do with living conditions in rural Kansas being particularly ripe. People on the Kansas prairie were dirt poor, literally. People were crammed into primitive living quarters, sod homes were not uncommon, and homes were, that were not made of sod uh, were not insulated. The winters were cold and wet, and there were sweeping dust storms in the spring and summer. It is also unclear whether it started in the army camp or in the local farming population who then went into the camp, but what is clear is that there was a sh literal shitload of manure in the area, and it is pointed out to be a potential cause for this virus mutation. So it's believed that this is actually a mutation of the virus that came back over with the Americans, and that's what really started killing people in this first wave. The camp itself had thousands of horses and mules who had produced nine tons of manure per month, and the solution for removal was burning it. Yeah. Oh, this combined with a brewing dust storm in early March are often looked at as a potential point for origin for this first wave as shortly after the first dominoes would fall with company cook Elbert Gitchell reporting to the camp infirmary on March 4th, followed by Corporal Lee W. Drake. Yeah, Lee w. Drake. By noon, Camp Sergeant Edward Schreiner had over 100 sick men on his hands. The camp held an average of 56,222 troops, and within three weeks, more than 1,100 others were sick enough to require hospitalization, and thousands more, the number was not recorded, needed treatment, in, treatment at infirmaries scattered across the base. Within the month, however, cases dwindled and it seemed the flu had passed. Many of the soldiers were, who recovered were sent to Europe. When the disease got to Europe, it began to mutate and became deadly, or even more deadly. By May of 1918, reports of ill American soldiers were reaching home, and it did not take long for the disease to spread from soldiers to the civilian population of Europe and beyond. 
Outside of the camp, no one knows what farm or what family first fell ill, but the guess is Santa Fe, Kansas, which is now a ghost town according to the Haskell County, is sort of thought to be that first community. But what is known is that a local doctor, Dr. Loring Minor, what a name, was concerned when he noticed this three-day flu wasn't typical and was an, inf quote, influenza of the severe type, and that it hit young, strong, and healthy people the hardest. He sent a report to the public health service, but no one was sent to investigate the situation. He could not have known the perfect storm which was brewing to spread the virus around the world, and at any point it could have lost its potency. But it didn't, and it kept building strength. Public Health Reports, a weekly journal produced by the U.S. Public Health Service to alert health officials about outbreaks of communicable diseases throughout the world, published his warning. In the first six months of 1918, this is the only reference in that journal to influenza anywhere in the world. Haskell County is largely ignored as an origin of the report, was published in April and referred to the deaths on March 30th after an influenza outbreaks elsewhere. Still, Haskell County, Kansas is the first recorded instance anywhere in the world of an outbreak of inf influenza so unusual that a physician warm warned public health officials. Like we said, the flu happens every year, and it has forever. <laughs> <laughs> this remains the first recorded instance suggesting that a new virus was adapting violently to people. So it was a big deal, basically. Now, through like these records and things like that, we've started to take Haskell County and Fort Riley as like more serious origins of, of the virus. So it should be called the Kansas flu. Exactly. <laughs> um, there was concern on the part of the government about shipping soldiers off to Europe in tight quarters and spreading the disease, but it was determined that troop shipments were far too important to the war effort, and uh, oh well. <laughs> the same went for the war effort back at home. Factories and workplaces reported cases, but shutting down was impossible in many instances. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. The camp at Fort Riley was responsible for feeding a constant stream of soldiers to Europe and to other camps in America. They moved uninterrupted to other army bases and in France. By mid-March, camps Forrest and Greenleaf in Georgia saw their first cases, and by the end of April, 66% of the army's 36 main camps had suffered an outbreak. 30 of the country's 50 largest cities also had an April spike. This first wave was generally mild, but the findings were disturbing nevertheless. An army study said, quote, at this time of fulminating fulminating pneumonia with wet hemorrhagic lungs, fatal in from 24 to 48 hours, was first observed. The first recorded, lung, or first recorded autopsy of an influenza victim took place in Chicago in early April 1918, and the pathologist noted, quote, the lungs were full of hemorrhages. He found it unusual enough to ask the then editor of the Journal of Infectious Diseases to look it over as a new disease. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, those fucking people up. <laughs> Reading some of the descriptions of, like, the autopsies that they would do was really... Gross. Yeah. Like, how people died was gross. And, uh, yeah, like, this first wave killed people, but mostly it you could recover from this first wave still. It's really when the Americans brought it over with them, and, like, it, that's when it really mutated. And the infamous second wave began. Yeah, the, and the interesting thing is that the second wave was the most deadliest wave which is not actually common in terms of pandemics no but this pandemic doesn't follow any of the typical markers no, of a regular it said, pandemic fuck the rules fuck nature yeah <laughs> so the spread of the second wave was from a mutated strain and is believed to have originated when military ships left plymouth in late august 1918 sending unknowingly infected soldiers to brest france freetown sierra leone and boston massachusetts James Harris, a historian who wrote about this, is quoted as saying, quote, The entire military-industrial complex of moving lots of men and material in crowded conditions was certainly a huge contributing factor in the ways the pandemic spread, end quote. And it's correct. Like, his, his assertion is correct. The, the reason why this spread so fast is because of the large amount of troops moving around the world, especially between Europe and North America. In Boston, Chelsea Naval Hospital became swarmed with patients suffering from the virus. Most were young soldiers waiting to be shipped out to Europe. Within two weeks of the first known case in the first naval district, 2,000 were suffering from the virus. By the beginning of September, three civilians randomly dropped dead within a short time of one another. It was discovered these individuals had contracted the virus not long before a win the war for freedom parade took place through the city consisting of 4,000 people 
a thousand of which were sailors from Commonwealth Pier and around 200 civilian Navy and dock workers. Dr. John Hancock of the Massachusetts Department of Health realized it may already be too late to prevent a mass outbreak in the city and began the process of getting the government to act, saying, quote, unless precautions are taken, the disease in all probability will spread to the civilian population, end quote. By September 11th, 1918, the virus had been exposed to the civilian population. And by the end of the month, over 1,000 people had died. During the month, reports of the virus came out all of all places between Rhode Island and Florida. In, in total, 12,000 sailors in Boston alone fell ill. The American government was reluctant to do anything. 1918 saw the passage of the Sedition Act, which criminalized the act of saying anything the government concluded was harmful to the country or the war effort. Basically, you could get sedition is treason. It is unknown if the government used the Sedition Act to silence coverage of the spread of the disease, but it is, it is known that many publications downplayed the severity of the influenza, possibly out of fear that they, were tar that they would be targeted for prosecution under the Sedition Act. The same sort of censorship was seen in many European nations involved in the First World War, which is why places like the United Kingdom and France and Germany we're not reporting on this virus. In Philadelphia, a Liberty Loan Parade was scheduled for September 28th. Doctors pleaded with the municipal government and the citizens not to continue with the plans, fearing what would come. However, several high officials in the Department of Health and Charities continued to assure the public the outbreak would not spread beyond the military personnel. Furthermore, Dr. Paul Lewis, director of the Phillips Institute, claimed to have found uh, Pfeiffer's back Bacillus as the cause of the illness, creating false confidence amongst professionals and the public that the end of the disease was soon to come. 200,000 people gathered for the Liberty Loan Drive, which crossed through much of the city. Within a few days, 635 new cases were reported. Quickly, the council realized this mistake and declared a closure of churches, schools, and theater, also adding place, places of quote-unquote public amusement. Shutdowns were condemned in the press as a violation of personal freedoms. However, more and more became sick, and by mid-October, hundreds of thousands of people contracted the influenza. Soon, parish homes and state armories were being used as sick shelters, and quarantines sprang up across the United States. The lack of preparation was also in part to many medical professionals volunteering medics overseas. Up to 75% of Philadelphia's medical personnel were in Europe at the time of the second wave. So imagine dealing with an outbreak of like tens of thousands in your city alone with only 25% personnel. We, we thought the public health response this time was slow. Yeah. <laughs> The number of dead overwhelmed morgues who did not have anywhere near the capacity to fit so many corpses. I've heard stories of um, refrigerated trucks being used as makeshift, like just piled with bodies mm -hmm. and left out on the sidewalk outside the morgue to deal with this. And oh, I remember hearing about that when I was living in Philadelphia, like that this, it was bad in Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia was really bad. And some of it was like their own fault. Well, yeah, they went, they're like, oh, the Liberty Loan will be fine. will be fine. Oh, my mega rally will be fine. Just get everyone to sign waivers and we'll, it'll be fine. Uh. I mean. <laughs> yeah. We did go to a protest, but. <laughs> we did, but we were safe. Yeah. And we knew the. Yeah. Anyway. These are people that, anyway. Undertakers even raised the price, price of their services as high as 500%. And there are supposed stories of grieving families charged $15, which is $236.69 as of 2020, to dig graves for their lost loved ones. Within only a few weeks, 13,000 Philadelphians had died. It's really, imagine like having to dig your own, like you pay to dig your grave and then you have to dig your, your own grave. Like you had to dig the grave yourself for your loved one. It's horrific. San Francisco was spared from the first wave with no recorded cases. On September 24th, new resident from Chicago, Edward Wagner, fell ill. 
Throughout September and October, the city also fell into the patriotic fever, and it is believed the combination of parades and liberty drives increased the spread of the flu. Hint, hint. The hardest hit districts happen to have high immigrant populations, which is debated as due to either language barriers or racism, and it isn't in my opinion that it's actually both, restricted access to proper medical care for these people. Whenever there's a debate like that, usually. It's, it's usually it's usually both. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's this. Oh, it's this. Oh, actually, it's maybe, probably both, guys. San Francisco became the first city to enact mandatory mask wearing in order to help prevent the spread of the influenza. Most of the city's population obliged, while those who didn't were arrested and placed in jail. <laughs> Throughout the world, people were claiming to have come up with vaccines led and this led to countless thousands of people getting inoculated with useless and potentially harmful vaccines. Interesting enough, the Danish capital of Copenhagen was spared from the catastrophic mortality of the other places, and it's theorized to be largely from the immunization of those who contracted the strain from the first wave. A lot of the city was had contracted it during the first wave, and the city's mortality rate went from 0. 2% to just 0.29% in the second wave with a total mortality rate of 0.27%. So Copenhagen managed well. By November, flu cases were on a decrease and restrictions began to be lifted. On November 21st, sirens throughout San Francisco rang to signal people could take off their masks. San Francisco fared better than most eastern cities, seeing only 23,639 cases and 2,122 deaths. I know that seems like a lot, but compared to like yeah. Philadelphia's 13,000 deaths and how, who, how probably 50,000 like total cases, yeah. Unfortunately, the removal of masks was premature and up to 5,000 new cases were reported through December. Also, there's some contention too to like how useful some of the masks were because they were very thin cloth in most cases. Like the quality of, and so I say that with the caveat of to everybody who's like, oh, I shouldn't wear a mask now. The masks we wear now are much better. The masks they were wearing were literally like your sock, like yeah. that thickness or less. Like they were very, very thin. And so in most cases, like, they yeah. weren't. And I mean, you're definitely not going to catch it when you're wearing a filter mask, which I've seen people wearing. Me too. Yeah. Um, but just in general, like, even, like, the non-medical masks we're wearing are made of just better materials. Yeah. <laughs> the total American dead in October alone was 195,000 compared to 116,000 American military casualties during their entire involvement of the First World War. More people died of the influenza than, or more Americans died of the influenza than soldiers on the front some of that though like i mean it's an imp i mean it's a big number and like the second wave was super deadly but like america also wasn't in the war that long no so still crazy though absolutely and also apparently uh, almost like uh, just over a quarter or just around a quarter of the american population caught the influenza which is insane yeah in Canada, which I'm disappointed to say there's not a lot of information on, even on the Canadian government website, it's like a paragraph. The disease spread from soldiers returning, of course. The hardest hit regions were Labrador, Quebec, and the First Nations reserves. It is estimated 50,000 Canadians died from the virus, most in Montreal with 3,128 and Toronto with 1,600. Alberta lost 4,000 people total. The University of Alberta saw a particularly bad outbreak. Many enrolled students had just returned from the front when the second wave hit, and it spread through the institution quickly. It got to the point where the university had to be quote-unquote disbanded in order to properly deal with the outbreak. Like, thank you, University of Alberta, for having actually a lot of useful information. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that you never do, but like, I wasn't having high hopes anyone would have a lot of information about this and then here you are first nations and native american reserves were some of the hardest hit communities in brevig mission alaska 90 percent of the population died from the disease unfortunately data collection on these communities at the time and actually still someone are are piss poor mm -hmm. and so there 
isn't an exact number of how many died, and it's possible the statistics collected are not accurate, i.k.a. they're too low. This is why uh, that what they were talking about the rally last Saturday about race-based data collection is so important. Yeah. Labrador saw a massive drop in its Inuit population as a result of the pandemic, and it, devast it devastated their mm -hmm. population. And once again, I'm pissed because there is not a lot of information on that. Every single site I saw said, oh, these communities were hit hard. Yeah. End sentence. Yeah. Okay, it's thanks. Kind of a story of research. Yeah. Another sad possible cause of many of the deaths, other than what Lindsay said uh, as complications like pneumonia, during the second wave of, was aspirin poisoning. Dr. Karen Starko theorized this possibility due to the high to the due to the use of high dosages of aspirin back in the early 20th century, which is now known to be harmful and even deadly today. The theory is fuel, further fueled by reports from the Public Health Service at the time raising questions over the degree of damage to the lungs were too great to have been caused by influenza alone. Aspirin was widely used during the outbreak as the original manufacturer Bayer lost the patent the year before, opening up production across the drug market. With the outbreak in the fall of 1918, the Surgeon General and the U.S. Navy recommended and bought up large quantities of aspirin, which in those days did not list any of the negative effects. Aspirin was used to ease the symptoms in patients to help them feel better and Probably, once you hear the dosage that they give in, it probably just made them high as fuck. Because the Journal of the American Medical Association at the time recommended a dosage of 1,000 milligrams every three hours, which is equivalent to 25, 325 milligram tablets over a 24-hour period. Good Lord. Yeah. It's so like a whole bottle of aspirin. Yeah. Multiple bottles. Yeah, like every three hours. Jesus Christ. <laughs> It is difficult and more likely possible to tell the exact or even estimated numbers of deaths by aspirin overdose caused during the pandemic. And oh, it's well. not, it's also not proven. Again, it's just a theory, but like reading this. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like, legit. It does seem legit. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I can't imagine having that much fucking oh, aspirin God. every three hours. You're, you'd just be stoned the whole time and like in a daze. Be so fucked, yeah. On top of having a fever, you're stoned on aspirin. Yeah, yeah. it's not really helping you break the fever. I just thought of that now. Yeah, fucking hell. This I, I kind of bringing things up to a positive note. One of the funniest things I read during this entire thing is that women who did not want unwanted attention from men, mm. which yeah, it was a big thing back then, as it is now. Mm. Just thank. Hopefully today it's less, um, what's the word? It's less uh, appropriate. Well, it's, it was never appropriate, but it's less accepted mm. by society or at least hopefully getting to that point. Um, the women who didn't want this unwanted attention would pretend to cough and sneeze <laughs> to, to ward people off. <laughs> I'm like, that's actually fucking genius. It is, and terrible. <laughs> It is terrible, but it's it's genius. So, I, I mean, mean, so the reason I say it's terrible is that it's like white women do this shit all the time. It's like the same thing as that woman in the park calling the cops on a black di black dude. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. <laughs> it's funny, but like it's the same. It's really funny. It's clever. It's clever. Well, not calling the cops on a black dude, but, no, but coughing and sneezing to get rid of like get to, rid of cat get rid of a cat call. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> dead men can't cat call. <laughs> <laughs> the economic effect it was it's kind of looking this all over it was all over the place but generally the overall effect it was short term though different businesses types were affected differently businesses were forced to close as much of the workforce became ill or bedridden all sporting events were canceled and public gatherings were forbidden even funerals were banned during the co or course of the outbreak. Just like now. Yeah. Ugh. Oh, man. So bad. Uh, labor shortages became widespread with less people able to do or willing to risk working. 
The service and entertainment industries saw losses in the double digits. They were, were some of the hardest hit. Same as now. Pretty much. But what's interesting is that this, this actually led to an increase in minimum wage in Canada and the United States mm -hmm. because they wanted people to work. It led to one of the massive or like one of the largest like wage increases in coal in West Virginia. Okay, well, I'm going to drop my fun fact for the day now. Not at the end of the episode. I'm going to do it now. Okay. Because I'm just like That's thinking fine. of it. Yeah. Um, so the world, the first world war actually was really helpful in the unionization of coal workers in West Virginia because uh, they had, or because union leaders agreed to put us, like the unions at this point were still pretty new and union leaders kind of agreed to put, a, put aside some of their labor-like disputes through the war because they recognized how important American coal was to the war effort for like everybody, not just Americans, through the whole of the whole war, not just like once America got involved. And so that after the war, the unions ended up with a lot of power. And so they were able to get a lot of things for mine workers because they uh, were like, hey, look, and it allowed them to actually push into areas of West Virginia that were extremely difficult to, um, to unionize previous to that. There you go. So. Thanks. That's a good fact. There you go. Healthcare and pharmaceuticals saw an increase in profit, like they are now. <laughs> Tourism came to a standstill, again, like now. For one, the ocean liners were not running due to the war, and its resumption was delayed due to the pandemic. And we did, I, if you remember in our Titanic episode last year, it was the only, like we, we discussed this, it was the, literally the only way you could get from Europe to North America, vice versa was through these ocean liners, like the Cunyard lines. Mm. So the flu the war put a standstill to all of that, especially after the Lusitania was sank. And uh, the pandemic wasn't going to help because no one wants to be on a crowded boat, no matter how luxurious it is. The exact economic impact of the pandemic is difficult to determine and greatly debated amongst historians and economists as both the war and pandemic intertwined the state of the economy of the world at that time, which is fair. It's definitely it would definitely be difficult to determine because of those two variables. So, yeah, that's uh, the devastating second wave, which was the worst wave which makes me worried about a second wave of covid same yeah like the second and third waves of the 1918 pandemic were much much worse than the first as was the mo of this pandemic it left as quickly as it came so the second wave came in swiftly and killed everyone and then left and um an undercurrent of unease remained obviously um which was aided but it was kind of like it remained, but for the most part, then, um, you know, it started to dissipate. And that was aided by the euphoria with the end of the war happening. Um, and traffic started to return to the streets and things kind of went back to normal after the second wave a little bit. But again, the flu was not done. It just was hiding. And a third wave followed in January of 1919 and ended in, in that spring in June. So this wave was lethal by any standard, except the second wave of the same virus. <laughs> um, and one particular case would have an arguably exceptional impact on history. Like we said, a lot of famous people got the virus. So during the Versailles Peace Conference, Woodrow Wilson collapsed. His sudden weakness and severe confusion halfway through the conference, conference which was widely noted, very possibly contributed to him abandoning some of his principles, which led to a disastrous peace treaty, as we all know. Yep. Some historians have attributed his condition to a minor stroke, but in fact, he had a 103 degree temperature with intense coughing fits, diarrhea, and other serious symptoms, which are not explained by a stroke. Influenza, which was then widespread in Paris and killed one of Wilson's aides, does explain the symptoms, including the confusion. Experts have later agreed that many patients afflicted with the pandemic flu had cognitive or psychological symptoms, so they often were like delirious or had a lot of confusion, which makes sense if you're running extreme fevers for long periods of time. Yeah. New York was hit particularly hard during this third wave. Uh, Wilson recovered, and the January 1 headline in the New York Times announced that he would leave Paris for Rome for more talks to craft his vision of the League of Nations to prevent future wars, lol. There was no mention of the virus in the leads of the New York Times that morning, along with the mentions of Wilson and the peace talks, despite the fact that in October of 1918, some 16,000 New Yorkers had died. Wilson never gave a speech about the flu, as morale needed to be maintained during the war. 
And then in peace, when the uh, communists were raging all over the world at home and in America, you know, needed to keep morale up. Um, I found this really cool source, actually. There's this independent um, East End paper in New York that has been doing a, a series on the 1918 flu pandemic uh, right now, like through this coronavirus thing. They're doing kind of a series. So I found a lot of this information there, actually. Um, but yeah, so it wasn't until page 17 in the list of 125 names in the death notices and obituaries that the virus was mentioned for the first time. Flu was not mentioned, but the unusual fact that most of them were aged 20 to 50 and died of sudden illnesses were giveaways. William Bulger, a lawyer, died suddenly at the age of 42. Quote, Frank B. Reeve, a wealthy farmer of Riverhead, Long Island, died on Sunday of pneumonia following influenza. On page 5 of the January 14th edition, a story of, out of Port Jefferson in the Times was headlined, Seven Die of Influenza. Quote, Sister St. Dennis of the Brooklyn Home for Crippled, Blind, and Defective Children and her six young charges died yesterday at the as the result of the epidemic of influenza that is sweeping through this institution. There are 350 children in the home. At least 250 are ill with influenza. Twenty of the sisters are suffering from the disease as well. The way was not cresting, but continuing to rise. On January 24th, Dr. Royal Copeland, New York City's Commissioner of Health, was quoted in the Times advising people on the spread of the disease, saying, quote, The person who coughs or sneezes discharges a spray more deadly than bullets or poison gas, unless the mouth and nose are covered by a handkerchief. Copeland also refused to close public, public places, schools, or theaters through the entirety of the pandemic, though he did order the hours of various businesses staggered to decrease the density during rush hour. On January 26th, the Times reported, are they dedicated page 35 to a report from the Surgeon General of the United States, Rupert Blue. For the first time, the American people were told that it was a disease and not bullets that was killing the majority of American soldiers, not abroad, but at home in base camps in the United States. The deadliest week in the base camps had been October 4th to 11th, or the same period during the second wave when New York City's numbers of, number of deaths and cases were cresting. A total of 5,290 soldiers died in U.S. base camps that week. Blue was far ahead of his time, advocating for national health insurance, and he was served as Surgeon General from 1912 to 1920. So he was a progressive, and I think he felt important that people knew what was going on. So essentially, this report came out during the middle of a third, during the third wave to report back on what was happening in October. In San Francisco, like Jonah had mentioned, a mask-wearing ordinance had been in place in October of 1918, stating that, quote, every resident and visitor of San Francisco would be required to wear a mask while in public or when in a group of two or more people, except at mealtime. Initial compliance with the mask ordinance was high, with 80% of the population wearing masks in public. The Red Cross sold masks at the ferry terminal for incoming passengers. Anyone who failed to wear a mask or wore it improperly was charged with, quote, was charged with disturbing the peace. They were warned and for subsequent violations were fined or jailed. The city health official and mayor were both fined um, for not wearing masks at a bo boxing match one time. The ordinance was annulled in November 1918, but when cases began to rise again, a new one was put in place mandating masks effective January 17, 1919. Some people had complained about masks during the first ordinance, but the opposition was much stronger the second time around in 1919. The Anti-Mask League was formed, with members including physicians, citizens, civil libertarians, and at least one member of the Board of Supervisors of the city. An estimated four to five, which is the Board of Supervisors is their city council, essentially. An estimated four to 5,000 citizens attended the meeting on January 25th, which is really safe in a pandemic. <laughs> Some members of the League wanted to collect signatures on a petition to end the mask requirement, while others wanted to initiate recall procedures for the city health officer. The debate was obviously heated. Some objections to the ordinance were based on questions of scientific data, while others considered the mask ordinance an infringement on their civil liberties. Sound familiar? On top of league complaints, some health officials from other cities also contended that masks were not necessary. San Francisco City Health Officer criticized the Secretary of State's Board of Health for questioning the efficacy of masks, saying, quote, the attitude of the state of the board or of the state board is encouraging the anti-mask league. On January 27th, the League presented a petition to the city's Board of Supervisors requesting a repeal of the ordinance. Newspapers across the world took note of the protesting organization, and San Francisco lifted the mask requirement, effective February 1st, 1919, on the recommendation of the Board of Health. They caved, essentially. <laughs> but yeah, so this third wave, um, people reported the strain as being so severe that people could wake up healthy and be dead by nightfall. In Albuquerque, four women agreed to meet for their regular bridge game and all wore cloth masks. By the next day, three of the four had died. The virus, like we talked about, touched every part of the world, and Canada was obviously no different. 
especially since we were heavily in war, involved at the war at the time. As with everywhere else, it spread rapidly from infected Canadian troops in camps in France and at home in the, to the civilian populations. It spread like wildfire through the healthy, healthy population of younger Canadians. Communities rallied to try to provide food, bedding, fuel, and care, but the speed of the virus spread highlighted the limits of medical knowledge and communicable disease control measures at the time, especially in Canada. It also revealed the limits of the medical system in Canada to this point, as access to quality health care was still very much lacking for the poor and First Nations. And honestly, this hasn't changed. Um, health care and equity is a really big deal still, especially. Well, a, lot of, <coughs> a, lot of, a lot of communities don't even have drinkable water. Yeah, exactly. Um, and viruses like this always, disease, public health crises always affect the, disproportionately dis affect the poor and, uh, and minorities, so. Yeah. Anywho, some 50,000 young men and women were lost to the virus in Canada, and that combined with the some 60,000 men lost in war prompted demands for government action to protect, the protect future generations. The government was criticized heavily for their response to the pandemic as they failed to provide resources and coordination to public health authorities across the country. It is difficult to know whether more lives would have been saved had there been a more coordinated effort, but the anger was certainly really palpable. In March 1919, Bill 37, an act an act respecting the Department of Health was opened for debate on the House of Commons floor by Honorable Newton Wesley Rowell. He argued that, quote, the powers of the minister extend to and include all matters and questions relating to the promotion of, health, of the health and social welfare of the people of Canada over which the Parliament of Canada has jurisdiction. Rowell was a constitutional lawyer, so he understood the divisions of power between the federal and provincial governments, but as a social progressive, he recognized the justice of the demands by the National Council of Women of Canada and the Trades and Labor Congress and Canadian Farmers for the Federal Health Department, whose main goal would be, quote, the conservation of health, of the health of the people. He and other speakers noted that Canada had a high maternal and infant mortality rate, poor housing, poverty, and high rates of industrial accidents and trauma in addition to war casualties. The healthcare situation was not good, in other words. The health of the nation was not good. The role of the federal government was to collect information about these problems and to encourage the provinces to provide programs to alleviate them. Though the British Insurance Act of 1911, which provided health insurance for workers uh, through contributions from employers, the government, and the workers themselves, uh, was mentioned during the debate in the bill, uh, only one member of parliament, Peter McGibbon, argued in favor of, quote, giving every poor man, woman, and child in this country free medical service from the cradle to the grave. We'd have to wait a like, couple more decades before we got Medicaid <laughs> or Medicare. <laughs> which we're going to talk about this season. Exactly. <laughs> So yeah, such idealism was not shared among MPs from Quebec and several Atlantic and Western provinces. They saw healthcare as a personal responsibility and that the government should not encroach on either the doctor-patient relationship or pr provincial jurisdiction. Labor unrest during the time and the Winnipeg general strike prompted fears of Bolshevik agitation and the idea of federal support for the, quote, sickness and invalidity insurance faded. Still, the bill went ahead and... The new Federal Department of Health opened in July 1919 with Newton Roll as the first Minister of Health and Dr. John Andrew Amyot, a decorated war veteran and former professor of preventative medicine and hygiene at the University of Toronto, as the deputy minister. Uh, so the Department of Health would later become reformed into Health Canada, which, yeah, is the governing body of public health mm, now. Right. Yeah, well, sort of. Yeah, so the third wave was quick again it was like six months came in slaughtered some people left and so the pandemic itself i guess after that kind of got forgotten about in a lot of ways people yeah. move people moved on so the legacy the legacy of this pandemic is that it has a, an inaccurate name um and that it is mostly forgotten about uh, so yeah despite the despite the fact that it like infected and killed a large percentage of the global population, it faded very quickly from collective memories. There are a few theories as to why that is the case. Um, the first relates to the pace of the pandemic, like we talked about a few times. It would kill most of its victims within nine months, and it didn't follow similar patterns of other pandemics. Most pandemics hit hard and fast, the they hit hard the first time, and then they'd kind of drag out over a long period. There had been other pandemic diseases that people were familiar with in this period, like cholera, diphtheria, and yellow fever. And they had been dealing with these kinds of outbreaks, you know, even through this, through this time period. There was also an encephalitis outbreak during the flu outbreak, which made the encephalitis outbreak worse. 
not a good time for no. health no. Uh, in the 20s. And or the late 1910s, early 20s. And uh, yeah, so the, the, it didn't follow the similar pattern. And so a lot of people, I think, kind of just, um, it didn't register the same significantly. It didn't register as significant for them. Um, also related to this was the fact that there was a war on. The flu pandemic was not covered widely by the media for reasons of censorship in some cases, but also that World War I was just much more of a focus for obvious reasons. Uh, outbreak deaths coincided with war deaths, which likely made it easier for the numbers to blend in. On top of this, the majority of both the wartime and disease deaths were among young, young adults. Normally, a lot of young adults dying from a disease would be more alarming, but these, diseases, or, but these deaths were all likely overshadowed by the fact that war-related deaths were also of young adults and people were reading the obituaries at the same time. Like, the fact that so many young people were dying of war overshadowed the fact that young people were dying of this disease. People often read war and influenza deaths side by side in the obituaries, and particularly, particularly in Europe, where the war's toll was obviously much higher, as the war had been raging for four years before the pandemic got there. The flu probably did not have a tremendous psychological impact, um, or it was just chalked up to being an extension of the war's tragedies. A lot of people died, a lot of property was destroyed, a lot of lives were ruined in this war, and so disease coming with it is just like, cool. <laughs> What more you got like so um that's i think why like we really have forgotten about it and it's why there's of, not a lot on it no there's really not a lot of information and then i mean you know the one source i found was like really there isn't a lot nobody talked about pandemics at all really until the late 90s and early 2000s when like sars and AIDS. swine flu and stuff and aids started popping back up where it's like oh okay <laughs> yeah right pandemics <laughs> one thing i was able to find a lot on is there's a lot of misconceptions about the flu we've already talked about the fact that it did not originate in spain and the other big one was that it was caused by some super virus this is not true research has found that particular strain of the influenza was no different from other epidemic causing flus the high rate of death is attributed to the crowding in military camps and cities combined with poor nutrition and substandard sanitation. Furthermore, those who contracted the virus were susceptible to bacterial pneumonias, which is what generally caused their deaths. The other misconception I saw was most who caught it had died. This, again, is not the case. It killed less than 20% of those who contracted it. However, it affected different populations greater. For we came, uh, Once again, it, the Native American and First Nations populations were hit hard, and most of those populations who caught it were actually killed, unfortunately. Entire communities of First Nations, Inuit, Métis, were wiped out. The pandemic hastened the end of the war. This is completely false. It is actually the other way around. The war hastened the spread of the virus. It is in the opinion of this historian, and by this historian I mean me, <laughs> that the pandemic had little to no impact in the war ending when it did, as there were a lot more pressing issues which brought it about. If anything, it might have just aided the Allies in some cases, but like... Yeah, but didn't, I... It didn't make it, didn't make it end faster, it just might have helped them a little bit. A like, little, uh... And even then... But even then, yeah. It's arguable. So this, the other pressing issues include the multiple uprisings in Germany between 1918 and 1919, the defeat of Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire, leaving Germany on its own, and the inability for the central powers to keep up with the number of fresh American troops entering the front line, etc. It goes on and on and on. Immunization led to the pandemic's conclusion. No. There was no immunization process for this pandemic, and most, if not all, inoculation methods either didn't work or were bogus. In fact, those inocul inoculation methods probably killed a lot more people. Yep. No preparations methods are in place to handle new epidemics today. This is bullshit. The truth is, the lack of action is the result of incompetent leadership. Yeah. 
not lack of preparation. Officials and professionals working for organizations such as WHO and for the national governments are consistently working on methods to prevent the spread of infections and has seen some of success in the past. The fact that those organizations exist is actually progress because none of that existed when the 1918 pandemic happened. Exactly. There was no coordinated public health effort. Yeah. And that's why Canada created the Department of Health after it because it was yeah. like, man, we fucked that up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we need a central body to cover that. Yeah. The, reason, the real reason why some places now are less prepared than others is because of budget. For example, the American CDC recently had their pandemic control budget slashed by the current administration. So there's that. Awkward. Now, we're, because I, we couldn't escape this when reading about it, there are comparisons to the COVID-19 current COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, I guess there's always a pan I mean, to be fair, I mean, all pandemics have comparisons. Yeah, so. but I just see these And these are ones. very, like, clear comparisons. Yeah. I have to start with this. I already mentioned this at the beginning, but I have to say it again. COVID-19 and the Spanish flu are not related. Both are completely different types of viruses. COVID-19 is not a type of influenza, but what is known as an RNA virus, which is rubinucleic acid virus for those science folks who listen. I know I butchered it. I'm sorry. In fact, COVID is a strain of the SARS virus, like I mentioned before. The only link between COVID and the Spanish flu, or any flu for that matter, is that they're both RNA viruses. That's it. Yeah. I mean, so is the common... Which is, which is all flu, yeah. technically. So is the common cold. Yeah. So... The flu, the flu is a respiratory illness, essentially. So yeah. Like... So is a cold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the action taken by governments to prevent the spread is what people are and really need to be drawing comparisons to. In both cases, mandatory quarantines were put in place, compulsory mask wearing was enacted in cities and businesses, practicing of social distancing was recommended, etc. I mean, even at the protests that we were at, we were socially distanced. I mean, not necessarily from each other, but... No, and, like, not as far as we sh could be, but not, like, not... We were at least far as set there was space. Yeah. Like... I was wearing two masks as well, because... Mine was fairly thick. My, the first one I had was fairly thick, and the second one is more for... Yeah. Facial color? Well, yeah, but it, and it, like, it pinches down on my nose, so it doesn't fog up my glasses. That's the only problem with the mask is it fogs up my glasses. Yep. Um, news organizations are much more transparent this time around, along with most governments in terms of providing citizens with updates on what the numbers are and what's what the government is doing. Of course, some places are handling a lot better than others. For example, New Zealand is a beacon of hope during this pandemic, and it was just recently announced that they, the last known case has recovered, and now businesses are opening back up. People are allowed to crowd, uh, and people are going out in droves celebrating, which I think they deserve. Nice. As one Reddit Reddit user said, we're, we, we are allowed to go out and celebrate because we actually listened to our officials and followed the rules. Brazil and the United States are currently in the red. Both have horrible fucking leaders with, who value profit and power over people. I have no, I have no apologies for saying that. The continued holding of patriotic parades and liberty drives can draw comparisons with Lord Dampnut's continued decision to hold mega rallies to boast to his sycophants. Prejudice surrounding both pandemics is also occurring. People of Asian ancestry had been harassed due to the Wuhan province being basically patient zero for the spread. There were even campaigns to name COVID the Chinese virus, which is fucking stupid. Yeah. And I much prefer calling it the Trump virus. Me too. Both were new strains of existing viruses resulting in humanity being taken off guard due to them being new, there were no previous immunity, and therefore both have never been able to, both have been able to infect the a large the large number of people that they have. That's why the Spanish flu spread so quickly. It wasn't that it was a super virus or anything like that. It was just that for somehow throughout all of human history, we had not managed to catch that strain up until that point. Which is pretty much where we're at right now. Yeah, it's a novel strain. 
both went from having elderly be the most vulnerable to most age groups being vulnerable. This COVID-19 has attacked every, like done devastating effects to people from all ages, all types of health. The Spanish flu killed more young, healthy people than it did elderly people. Well, and again, like this, there's a reason to potentially that it attacked young people specifically. It was just because their immune systems were going to fight it the hardest and therefore kill them faster, which is crazy. But yeah. And like with COVID, children apparently like are young, starting to chil- get it. Well, children are like weren't uh, that badly affected by it. No. So. So. That's the 1918 forgotten pandemic. So it's weird talking about this while we're in the middle. We certainly didn't expect to be in the middle of a pandemic when we recorded this. No. I mean, when, we when, we, when we planned it, sorry. When we didn't, well, we didn't even expect to be in the middle of a pandemic in January. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's uh, just, I guess we can talk about, this is like one of the most frustrating parts of our job. Just no one talked about it. And I like going through this, I was like, well, no wonder a lot of places were unprepared to deal with like having to go into quarantine and whatnot. What's interesting is I did find out is that the methods that the Canadian government are using right now are the same methods that were recommended and put in place after the Spanish flu. Yeah. So that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think to the credit, I guess, of public health people, they learned a lot of lessons. Like, yeah, we don't talk about the pandemic all that much anymore. And like, there's not a lot of information necessarily. But the information we do have is in the policies that exist, right? You can extrapolate the why the policy, like you can see, you can kind of like work backwards from like, okay, containment, like pushing policies of containment and like quarantining and self-distance, social, like physically distancing, things like that, like trace those back. And it's like, they didn't do any of that during the 1918 flu pandemic, they sent, you know, cramped ships of soldiers to war and it spread faster. So, okay, clearly it makes sense to do the opposite. And so I guess we took the right lessons. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Well, we did. (laughs) There are others, not so much, like um, certain group of people down at the corner and set on in the park on 17th. Yeah. Yeah. Who we see quite often. Yellow vest protesters. Well, I already dropped my fun fact for the day, so what's your fun fact? My fun fact is uh, there's there's an island that's part of Norway. It's really far north in the Arctic. Svalbard? Svalbard, yeah. It is illegal to die there. Every citizen living there is forbidden to die on Svalbard. Interesting. So when you're close to death, you're flown down to Oslo where you were where you live out your the rest of your days and the reason for that is because the ground is frozen most of the year and it's way too difficult to dig graves and they don't have a mortuary or a crematorium and the only bodies that are on that island died of the Spanish flu (laughs) and because of the frozen ground the flu virus is still alive within those bodies. Yeah. They're just in kind of... That's also probably why you're not allowed to dig anything up in oh, Svalbard. Yeah. Very much so. There's one cemetery on the island and no one is allowed to dig in there. I mean, even, even if you can, the ground is frozen. Another interesting fact about Svalbard is you're not allowed to leave the main city, Longyearbyen, uh, without, uh, without, without a, a gun. Yeah, because of polar bears. I did know that. Yeah, Longyearbyen has one of the longest is one of the cities with the longest days in yeah. the world, which is pretty awesome. Um, one of my the sh- so the the ship that I like the tall ship that I did a uh, my Sailboat. sailing trip on, it does like a you can actually pay and do like a sailing trip on it from like Oslo to Svalbard. Whoa! I think. Nice. Yeah. Svalbard looks really like it looks like a cool place to visit yeah yeah it does being that far north in the world oh yeah 
I think it's I think long year Bren is a you're getting a lot of facts this this year about Svalbard, but I think long year Bren is the highest located city mm -hmm. in the world. I think it is too. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's the pandemic. That's, that's season four has begun. And uh, our next episode is also topical. We're going to be talking about racist police. Uh, <laughs> okay. No, we're going to be we're going to be doing our we bumped up our history of the RCMP because it's very topical to be talking about the RCMP since we're talking about systemic racism and policing and yeah. the RCMP uh, were recently just involved in another shooting of a First Nations person Two. at time of recall. Yeah, at the time of this recording, there's been a second. Yeah. And, uh... The first one wasn't a shooting, it was a beating. This second one no, was No, there was, no. Oh, oh, no, 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 oh, right, no. There, sorry, Chantel Moore was shot, yeah. yes. Full disclosure... And a video of a yeah. beating from five months, from, from months ago. Full disclosure, my brother's an RCMP officer. Further disclosure, that's not mean I'm going to necessarily be biased. I'm going to be fair with this topic. Uh, just, just know that that's... That's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. That'll be probably a lot longer than this episode because there's, we're not just, we're talking from the very beginning. So when they were started off as the Northwest Mounted Police up until they merged into the RCMP. And they started as a paramilitary group. Yep. And then when they merged to form the RCMP and up until the present day. Yeah. Um. So... With that, uh, follow us on social media if you aren't. Um, Consider subscribing to our Patreon for extra content coming up. Yeah. I don't feel like pandering that hard right now. No, not so, really. Uh, so we're going to... Call it a day. Have a good one, everyone. Take care.